Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome, everybody. California has long led the nation with Cal OSHA's Workplace Violence Prevention and Healthcare Standard. And while federal OSHA is developing a workplace violence prevention and healthcare program, Texas likely surprised the nation by developing its own statute that was aimed at reducing acts of violence in the workplace directed against healthcare providers. With me today, I'm fortunate enough to have two of my Houston colleagues, John Serma, with whom I regularly present, Ryan Swink. Uh, John and Ryan recently published a blog on the new Texas law and have agreed to join us today with their Tales from the Texas Legislature. Gent, it's good to see you both today. Thanks for taking time to talk us through the new law. Thank you for having us, Frank. Um, as always, really enjoy getting together with you and presenting to our audience. It's good to be with you, and it, it's it's particularly good to be joined by uh, my office mate, and in fact, we share a common wall in the office, uh, Ryan Swank. It's great to be here with both of y'all. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Ryan, why don't you tell us what SB uh, 240 requires? SB 240 is pretty straightforward. Uh, it requires healthcare facilities to adopt, implement, and enforce a written workplace violence prevention program and a written workplace uh, violence prevention plan. So it's interesting to me. Uh, does the law target specific healthcare facilities? It does somewhat. So it uh, does so through its definition of a healthcare facility, um, and it lists several different types of facilities that are covered, including uh, home and community support service agencies uh, that are licensed um, and employ at least two registered nurses, uh, licensed hospitals and hospitals maintained or operated by a state agency. Licensed, licensed nursing facilities that employ at least two registered nurses, licensed ambulatory surgical centers, freestanding emergency medical care facilities, and licensed mental hospitals. Yeah, I'd like to throw something in here, just to kind of follow up on the list that Ryan gave, and I thought it was interesting, and not to get too far afield because this is really a workplace health and safety podcast as opposed to a, a podcast relative to you know, kind of the state of affairs in Texas government and then Texas public agencies. But, you know, on one hand, we're going to cover licensed hospitals and those hospitals are maintained and operated by state agencies, but we've not managed to cover home and community support service agencies that are state operated, state regulated. So, you know, while we're covering essentially the private sector on this, the public sector is not covered by it. And, 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 you know, I mean, as most of the audience knows, when you're talking about federal OSHA, federal OSHA doesn't cover the public sector and, and state OSHA plans, state plans do cover the, the, that sector. But somehow in, in, in this legislation, while we're covering state hospitals, essentially, we're not covering state agencies like Child Protective Services. Uh, that's helpful, John. Thank you for that clarification. In the meantime, I was distracted by the licensed ambulatory surgical center reference. I had a uh, an area director one time 
that define licensed ambulatory surgical center as ambulance um, operations <laughs> instead of uh, what ambulatory surgical center really means is they're able to, um, you know, they're able to walk and walk out. I understand that the law requires covered healthcare facilities to create a workplace violence prevention committee, or it also authorizes a, an existing facility committee to develop the workplace violence prevention plan. How are those committees composed? What actions must those committees take in order to comply with the law, John? Yeah, Frank. So the committees have to include at least one registered nurse who actually provides direct care to the facility's patients. So as a, for instance, in in a skilled nursing facility, retirement home, nursing home, whatever you want to call it, you know, if the only RN is the director of nursing and the director of nursing is not the person who's giving direct care, they're going to have to find an RN who actually uh, provides that. And then the, the second person that has to be part of that group is uh, a facility employee who provides security services for the, the facility. Assuming such a person actually exists and if it's practicable, and, and the standard, or excuse me, the standard, the, the law is not particularly clear on what that if practicable piece actually means, you know, I, I'd, I'd find it hard to believe that uh, it wouldn't be possible to have the security person, if you have one, on that committee. But interestingly enough, if the facility is owned by a group, the owner of the group or the ownership group can essentially establish a single facility, excuse me, a single committee for all of the systems facilities. And then the, the committee is to develop written violence prevention plans that are distinctly identifiable for each facility. So you can have one big overarching committee so long as you have an RN who is actually providing services to the patients or or to the folks that are receiving care there, residents, what have you. And then to the extent that there's a security person or somebody who's responsible for facility security, um, have one of them on, on that committee. And there can be one committee for the entire group and um, that's fine, but that committee has to essentially establish written plans for each of the, the facilities within that group. Yeah, the, I think the language goes something like distinctly identifiable for each facility, which is pretty consistent with the OSHAC expectations whenever you're developing workplace safety and health policies is it's got to be uh, distinctly identifiable for the facility, right? You can have one that is generically and basically the same, but it, it has to identify and differentiate any distinctions between facilities, which raises the next question, John, is how, how does somebody, uh, is there any guidance in the law as to how you would apply the program to, for instance, multiple homes if you're doing the, the home health care? No, there's not a lot of guidance in terms of how you execute the, the program. I mean, th- there's a fair amount of guidance relative to who has to or, or what type of organizations have to create these programs. There's a fair amount of guidance relative to um, what the, 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 the policy is supposed to do, as well as, you know, sort of other things that can be referenced, uh, you know, other requirements of the policy. But in terms of 
you know, kind of how you draft the policy so that it's specific and particular to each particular individual location. There's not a lot of guidance. I do think, however, your, your point is valid relative to the comparison between the OSH Act and this SB 240 in as much as, you know, I think that there are going to be ways that you can essentially create or customize the template to apply to, you know, each of the facilities, each of the homes, each of the ambulatory surgical centers, whatever it is in the group. And, and, you know, I mean, those things may be as simple as, you know, changing out the uh, name of the the facility, changing out the name of the police department that you're going to summon, you know, changing out, you know, what, hospital or emergency room you're going to take folks to, that type of thing. I I think that's a really helpful analysis, John. Uh, So uh, when I look at the law, it's broken into two parts. It kind of gives an overview of what's required, and then it breaks down and says, okay, now you've seen the overview, here's specifically what's required. Ryan, can you help us with the overview part? What's supposed to be or what is the objective of the workplace violence prevention policy? I think the overall objective of, of the workplace violence prevention policy is going to be similar to most you know, OSHA regulations in that it's going to need to be specific to the needs of that employer, uh, considering all relevant factors. You know, John discussed some of those just a second ago, but really it's, it's going to be to have a plan in place to protect employees from potential workplace violence that is you know, specifically tailored to the needs of that employer. And then it's also has some other kind of goals, which would be to uh, encourage uh, employees of the facilities to have a way to communicate with supervisors about potential issues regarding workplace violence, and then also have a process that will protect employees when they do raise complaints and issues. The law also provides that um, the Health and Human Service Commission can uh, promulgate rules uh, relating to workplace violence. And if they do that, it certainly will provide, hopefully, some some help to employers that are concerned about this. Ryan, do you know, is there an expectation that Health and Human Services will publish rules and regulations to help implement this, this law? The law seems to expect that they will. John, what are the specific terms that have to be included in the written plan? I know you've studied this. Uh, could, you, could you give us something a little closer than a 30,000-foot view of, of what we might expect HHS to come out with? There are some more specifics. and, and so, But they're kind of like you know, with some of the OSH standards you know, from the standpoint of you know, th- th- there's some specifics, but there's a lot of vagueness and there's a lot of generality in them. So as a, for instance, uh, one of the, the requirements is that the facility provide, you know, the, the term they use is significant consideration of the plan recommended by the facilities committee. So the committee we talked about earlier, that includes at least one RN who's directly involved in patient care and then the security person and evaluate any existing facility violence prevention plans. And just so our audience is clear, you know, almost every medical facility that I'm aware of, you know, save and accept, you know, some of the smaller ones that are kind of independent and privately owned have at some level a violence prevention plan. Um, You know, how effective it is, how updated it is, et cetera, 
you know, remains to be seen. And, but those are typically not created as a result of uh, committee involvement. Um, another thing that, that SB 240 requires is that the healthcare providers and other employees of the facility be encouraged to provide confidential information about workplace violence and acts of workplace violence to the committee. This one kind of strikes a little bit close to home. Um, you both know, and I don't think our audience knows, but you know, I live with someone who's in healthcare, and um, you know, recently they've they've seen kind of an escalation of things, and you know, recently had an incident where you know there there was a workplace violence incident. In fact partially perpetuated by the person that I live with. And I'm not sure how valid this point is because from what I can tell, uh, everybody in the facility knows all about this incident. And so, you know, I, I don't know how much valid or, or how much help this is, but it is what it is. Um, there's also supposed to be a process to protect the folks in the facility the employees, the, the clinicians who provide information about workplace violence to the committee. So kind of going hand in hand with the confidentiality piece. And then, you know, the the, the last big bullet is, is one that was already mentioned, which is complying with HHS commission rules relating to workplace violence. But those are kind of the, the big bullet points about what is required in the workplace prevention policy. So I understand that you have to have a definition. You have to have a definition in the policy that defines workplace violence. And I believe this is what's written into the law. It says that it's got to include an incident involving the use of a firearm or other dangerous weapon. And, and it's written in the conjunctive, an act or threat of physical force against a healthcare provider or employee that's likely to result in physical injury or psychological trauma. So I guess my question is, is workplace violence under this law, is it limited to the use of firearm or other dangerous weapon, which may or may not include barehanded fists or, or, uh, or anything like that? Well, I'll let Ryan give kind of his opinion, and he tends to be a little bit more scholarly than I do, but, but I think the answer kind of falls into to two buckets. You know, one is I think it's going to depend upon further clarification by HHS. But then the other is, you know, if you kind of continue on in the points in SB 240, you know, they're talking about uh, an act or threat of physical force against a healthcare provider. And, and I think that that really kind of opens up, you know, the, the world of possibilities. Yeah, the person I live with, my and just for clarity's sake, my girlfriend, the incident that she was involved in, you know, involved a situation where a family member, you know, brought a weapon into the facility that wouldn't necessarily fall into the category of dangerous weapon, but in the you know mental health space, which is where she works, you know, they view everything, including ballpoint pens, as dangerous weapons. I think that that definition is going to be very, very broad, and it's it's not going to be limited to, you know, kind of your traditional or things that people traditionally think of, you know, in terms of whether it be firearms, knives, clubs, what have you. I think it's I think it's going to be very, very broad. But but you know, again, Ryan's the researcher of this duo, and I'll let him chime in with his thoughts. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that, John. Um, I, it, it's going to be broad. And I, I also think it's going to be somewhat uh, workplace defend, dependent. So, you know, what might be considered workplace violence in a facility that is treating uh, high risk mental health patients is probably going to be different than the definition that you're going to assign in a children's hospital. Uh, but, you know, one of the kind of interesting interplays of this new law uh, kind of piggybacks on Texas's law that was passed two years ago related to the open carry of firearms. So um, as some of our listeners may know, Texas has essentially allowed everyone who's not a felon and over 21 years of age to carry either concealed or openly uh, a handgun without getting a license in advance. The Texas government code actually prior to that had some provisions mandating certain hospitals prohibit firearms in uh, their facilities, but that definition is not as broad as the definition of a covered facility in SB 240. So there's going to be some interesting interplay between the new law, the old Texas government code 411-204, and then the constitutional carry law that Texas passed uh, two years ago now. That sounds like an interesting conversation, Ryan. Uh, that might be another interesting podcast since we begin to reconcile those two or see how how the government, HHS, uh, tries to reconcile those two different acts. Uh, but at the beginning of the podcast, I'd mentioned Cal OSHA's Healthcare Workplace Violence Prevention Program. And so my, my question to you, Ryan, since uh, you've been billed as the great researcher, how does the Texas law compare? I mean, did Texas get creative and make up its, its own law or did it uh, adopt any provisions out of the Cal OSHA version of, of the law? It's similar to the Cal OSHA law in, in some respects, but I think really the key focus is, is the difference. So unlike the Cal OSHA provisions, the Texas law doesn't have a mechanism really for enforcement uh, or one with much teeth. So whereas the Cal OSHA and the potential future OSHA provisions will have a citation and penalty structure, violations of SB 240 will only really impact the facility's licensure. And I think any avid podcast listener would know, especially if you're into true crime, that Texas is hesitant to uh, revoke licenses of medical providers. John, uh, maybe you could start to bring us home here by uh, talking about how uh, SB 240 interplays with the OSH Act. Well, thank you, Frank. I, I appreciate having another opportunity to do a podcast with you. And, and, and Ryan, I, I'm, I'm glad you joined us. I, I'm glad that you weren't afraid to, to deal with the two of us who can sometimes be a little bit goofy. Uh, to answer your question, Frank, that there isn't you know, kind of a direct link in SB 240 to the OSH Act. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's zero reference to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. There, there's zero reference to um, anything that OSHA does. Um, and, and likewise, in, in the OSH Act, there isn't a reference to state and local legislation and, and how that might impact things other than as relates to a state plan. Where I do think there's going to be some interaction relates to 
um, the general duty clause and how OSHA may end up in a situation where, or, or how OSHA um, applies the general duty clause for both the, the facilities that are specifically called out in SB 240, as well as other healthcare providers. And, and by that, what I mean is, I think that from the standpoint of kind of the, the quote unquote duty of care, the, the, the quote unquote industry standard, I think that at least for Texas healthcare providers, I think that SB 240 is going to essentially create the standard of care so that if there is a workplace violence incident, OSHA is called to work with that healthcare provider to do an inspection. If the healthcare provider hasn't complied with the terms of SB 240, I think that may well be the basis of a general duty clause citation for that healthcare provider. I'd be curious to, to hear if, if Ryan agrees and, and, and if he has any qualifications or additions to that. I completely agree with you, John. I, I like to think of OSHA as a hammer in search of a nail. And particularly in, in the healthcare space recently, they have been doing a lot of what I like to call regulating through citation, as opposed to going through the traditional rulemaking and comment procedure. Any way that they can, can come up with a, a new standard without having to go through all that, they will do it. And we've seen it very recently in the healthcare space, and I expect it to continue. So, well, thank you both for, for those thoughts and that overview. The, the SB 240 goes into effect on September 1st of 2023, but uh, I understand there's no required compliance until September 1st, 2024. Uh, my question to you and uh, to each of you is, are there any actions that Texas employers could begin considering today to be ready to be fully implemented by September 1, 2024? How about you, Ryan? You want to start? Yeah, I can start. My recommendation would be to, to get started on putting these committees and putting these plans together. The more time you have to work out the bugs, the better. So starting your compliance with this new law before it is effective or before compliance is required uh, would be my recommendation. Yeah, I would follow up with what Ryan says and, and you know, a couple of thoughts. So in Texas, you know, there is an exception to the workers' compensation bar for uh, acts of gross negligence. And so, you know, from the standpoint of, uh, we haven't really talked about this and we don't, this isn't really necessarily the podcast to go into this, but I think that, you know, employers are essentially being put on notice by SB 240 that you have to act. And it would not surprise me if under SB 240, uh, prior to September 1, 2024, you know, some plaintiff's attorney, in the event of a, a workplace violence incident that results in death or in, 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 in a location where the people that are doing the work aren't necessarily employees of the owner of that group, you know, that SB 240 essentially creates the standard of care that that's used essentially to establish litigation claims. And so I think, you know, long before September 1, 2024, I think employers in the healthcare space that are covered need to get a policy in place, particularly in facilities where workplace violence is, is a big issue. So, you know, in EDs, you know, mental health facilities, um, you know, residential type facilities, you know, a lot of this stuff is just kind of industry standard stuff. And so, um, you know, the, the quicker employers in this space can get 
moving on this, the better off they're going to be. And that's not just from an OSHA standpoint, but I think from a general civil litigation standpoint as well. John and Ron, I want to thank y'all for uh, coming on today and talking through these issues. It's been very insightful and helpful. I hope that uh, everybody who's listening will keep an eye out for your future blogs because uh, I know y'all uh, y'all y'all are uh, prolific writers and uh, following these topics closely and tend to have a lot of helpful information. So thank you both. And John, Ryan, I look forward to our to our next encounter. Uh, be talking to, to each of you real soon. Well, thank you, Frank. We look forward to chatting with you again and look forward to presenting another podcast with you. Thanks, Frank. It was a, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.